Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, and we have uh, some brothers with Bibles as they make their way back. If you need a Bible, we want you to have one to follow along as we look at 1 Peter chapter 5 together. Those Bibles are marked at the appropriate passage, and they're a gift to us, uh, from us to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Some of you will remember the actor Michael Landon going back a good ways. He was Little Joe on Bonanza. Later he was Pa on Little House on the Prairie, and then later still he was an angel on Highway to Heaven. But in April of 1991, Michael Landon was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. As is often the case when folks learn that they have a terminal disease, he proclaimed his intention to fight it to beat it. New story, news stories about him featured that same theme. People magazine recounted his days as an athlete and the fact that he brought that same competitive nature to this new circumstance. But that following July, just three months after diagnosis, Michael Landon died. You know, friends, there are some things that we just can't. They're just too large for us. And though we desperately want to control them, they're beyond our power. And even smaller things that we can handle in manageable numbers, when they become so numerous, they become uncontrollable for us. Now, of course, it's, it's a right response to seek the most and best treatment that one can if diagnosed with an illness, terminal or not. And indeed, sometimes it may go into remission. And of course, it's right and it's good for us to fulfill our responsibilities and our various roles in the home and at work and at the church. But it's really hard for many of us to admit that there are things that are larger than us. And there are tasks that are just too numerous for us. And the things that we battle are not only those that are taking place right now, in the present. Many of us have situations from our past that haunt us in the present. Those things may be things that we've done or things that have been done to us. And so the guilt or the shame or the anger or perhaps all of these are our regular foes week in and week out. One of the reasons that Americans in particular have such high rates of anxiety and depression is that we bought into the lie that we can do it. We're a nation of entrepreneurs, self-starters, rugged individualists. And as as a result, we fret about what we cannot control. And we fret about losing the control of that which we currently control. And so statistics say this, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting more than 40 million adults from age 18 and older. That 40 million is comprised of people suffering from a whole array of different labels and phobias. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, here are some of them. Generalized anxiety disorder. It affects 6.8 million adults. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, another couple million. 
The median age for the onset of this, they say, is 19. Hoarding is the compulsive purchasing, acquiring, searching, and saving of items that have little or no value. Panic disorder affects 6 million people. Post-traumatic stress disorder, another 7 million. Social anxiety disorder, 15 million. And then there are specific fears, phobias, that 19 million people have of, of various types. Major depressive disorder. The leading cause of disability in the U.S. for those ages 15 to, to 44, according to this organization. And then there's just chronic, what they call mild depression. Symptoms that persist for at least two years uh, must be present in order to meet the criteria for that diagnosis. And then related illnesses that go with all of these sorts of things. Many people with any kind of anxiety disorder, they say, have a co-occurring disorder or physical illness which can make their symptoms worse and recovery more difficult. I recently heard the phrase, silent sufferer. And over the years, I've discovered many people in the church who fit that description. It's something close to what Henry David Thoreau called the quiet lives of desperation that most people lead. But dear friends, there should be no silent sufferers in God's church. Rather than recoil to ourselves as we are so often tempted to do, we should seek the prayer and the support and the counsel of our brothers and sisters. Now, I didn't say there should not be sufferers in God's church. There should not be silent sufferers. There will be, indeed, sufferers, all of us in some way, shape, or form, but not silently, not alone. And not only should we seek God's people as allies in our struggles, we should apply God's remedy to those struggles. And what is God's remedy? First Peter chapter 5, notice the end of verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And in the time we have together today, we want to see how it is that we do that. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we need Your help yet again. Lord, we each suffer in various ways and in various forms. Some to this point silently. Many of us, not following your remedy, we ask you to open our minds, grant us clarity of thought, open our hearts to the instruction of your word, that we may be able to deal with the struggles that come with life in a fallen world in a way that honors you, in a way that brings healing to our hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, at the end of verse number five, as we saw last week together, it says this. God opposes the proud, but He shows favor to the humble. And then in verse 6, which begins the passage we're going to consider today, verse 6 is connected to that last portion of verse 5 when it says this, Humble yourselves therefore. You see, therefore, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble, therefore humble yourselves. Verse 6. And do so under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. 
Now, what it's saying then is God shows this favor to the humble, so therefore the instruction for us is clear. We are to humble ourselves. And then verse 6 gives us the basis for doing that. And I have that listed for you in the outline that's been inserted in your program. If you don't already have that out, I encourage you to take a look. There are four major points there. We will probably just do the first two in our time this morning. But verse 6 gives us the good reason that we have to humble ourselves before God. We have good reason to humble ourselves before God. And the first of those good reasons is because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We have good reason, and the first is God is sovereign. It says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Now, when it says, under God's mighty hand, that's an allusion to passages in the first part of your Bible that will often refer to God's powerful arm, God's ability to perform His works because of His power, and usually His, His arm or His hand are used as imagery for that. And we see it in Exodus chapter 3. The king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So the Lord says, I will stretch out my hand and I will strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And then we see it again in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God says to his people, you say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. So God's sovereignty, the fact that God has all powerful power and is able to do with that power as He pleases, is good reason then for us to humble ourselves before God and trust Him in the circumstances that He allows into our lives. Now, sovereignty, like many words in Christianese, you know, it's a language all to itself. It's one of those things we use but don't often think about what it means. So let me just talk about that for a moment. God's sovereignty is the result of two attributes that He has. His complete knowledge and His complete power. God is omniscient and God is omnipotent. He knows all and he has the power to do all. And because he knows all and has the power to do all, therefore he controls all, and that's what sovereignty is. You see, it's one thing to know what needs to be done. It's quite another to have the power to carry it out. And God has both of those, and he has those in infinite degree. And therefore, we say God is sovereign. God is in complete control of His world. There is nothing that happens in His world that is outside of His plan and outside of His control. And that includes your life and my life. We're only going to trust God in this if we believe He has the power and the knowledge to intervene in a productive way in our lives. Many of us, as we sit here now, we think about, I would like to do that. I would like to trust that. And I know that in the pages of Scripture, there are recorded the stories of over and over again of God actually doing that. But in my life, you don't understand what's going on with me. It is out of control. And we think it doesn't work. Works on Sunday. We nod our head. Yep, I'm glad it worked for those people. But somehow it just doesn't work for me. And we think it doesn't work because we haven't experienced how it works in our situation. 
But you will only do it. You will only humble yourself, submit yourself, place yourself under the sovereign control of God. In your circumstance, hear this now, if you believe that obeying Him is best and always ultimately produces the best outcome. And so the reason many of us believe this stuff in theory but not in practice, not in our own lives, is because we have not come to the point that we have convinced ourselves absolutely that obeying God, come what may, is best and it will produce what is best. And as a result of that, we take matters into our own hands. How we respond to our situations always says something about what we believe regarding God. Do you believe that God is absolutely all-knowledgeable and all-powerful and therefore has complete control? This passage gives us an absolute guarantee. It says that His mighty hand will that, that His mighty hand may lift you up. But in fact, that's written in such a way as it's really a declaration. His mighty hand will lift you up. And the may language only relates to whether or not we humble ourselves, not whether He will lift us up. But if we humble ourselves, in fact, He will lift us up. And the question for you, the question for me, is do we believe that? So let me ask it to you this way. What can you think of that God is unable to do? And we know there, forgive the grammar, ain't nothing he can't do. But somehow we think there is in my life. He can't work this thing out. It can't come out the way it should or best in my life. Somehow we think that in the recesses of our mind and therefore we do not humble ourselves under the sovereign hand of God. Now this first point in verse number 6 has to do with God's ability, God being able to do this. But it is one thing to be able, but it's another thing to be willing. And the beautiful news is that God is both of those. God is both able and God is willing to intervene in the circumstances of our lives so that if we humble ourselves under His sovereign mighty hand, then that will be best and it will in the end turn out to be best. God knows what should be done. And he has the power to put it into effect, but then that raises a question. He knows what should be done for whom? Does he have my individual, personal best interests at heart? But I want you to see, in fact, that is the case. God gives us in this passage good reasons to humble ourselves before him. The first is he is sovereign. The second one in your outline is this, that God is good. He not only has the ability... He has the willingness. He has the willingness because he is good. And the question is, whose good does he have at heart? He is good, and God is able to produce good results in my situation. Philippians 1 and verse 6. He who began, notice, a good work in you. He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Many of you know this next verse we're going to put on the screen in a moment. It's one of those, I call them cross-stitch verses. You know, these are the kind of verses, there's a handful of them, you know, maybe 15 or so that are cross-stitch verses. Everybody knows them. They're often taken out of context. This is one of them, but it has a principle that is indeed very precious, but it's given to God's people as they were 
in going into captivity at the hands of the hated Babylonians. And God is reminding them that I am punishing you. But in the midst of that punishment, here's what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Do you see that even in the midst of the difficulty, even in the midst of sometimes the discipline, God is saying, I know the plans I have for you. I know the outcome of this. And the outcome will, for God's people, always be good. And that is why, properly understood, we have this famous, another cross-stitch verse in Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. I want you to notice now who is central, who's the subject of this, this verse. It is God. The way the NIV translates this is correct. It is that God works all things. King James Version says that we know that all things work together for good. But hear this, friends, things don't work. They don't just work themselves. God actively works them. And He actively works those things for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Now, what are those things that He works for good? Well, if you were to read the rest of Romans chapter 8, you know, that's the trouble with cross-stitch verses. Got my cross-stitch, I end. But you read the rest of it, and it says, you know, we're more than conquerors over things like nakedness and sword and all kinds of persecutions and perils. In the midst of all of these, these bad things, God works those bad things for good in the lives of His, His people. And the question for us, just like with God's sovereignty, is the same with this then. Is there anything God's not able to do as a sovereign God? Of course, the answer is no. And do you believe that God is good? And do you believe that God is not just good in the abstract, but that He's good to you? And He's good in the midst of your difficulty. That's why verse 6 tells us we're to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand that in due time He may lift you up. In due time. We all know the timetable God ought to operate with. <laughs> it's ours, right? But God says in, in due time. That's another way of saying in my time. Certainly by the end of time, He is orchestrating all things so that they work together for good. And sometimes in time, but always on His time schedule. And that's why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he has made everything beautiful, but notice, in its time. One preacher said it this way, life is frustrating and perplexing because we cannot control life circumstances. And here in Ecclesiastes 3, God said to make all things beautiful, but he does it in his time. This verse teaches that God creates beauty out of ugliness, that he does this in everything. And that he does it according to his timing and not ours. In Hebrew, the word everything stands at the beginning of that sentence in Ecclesiastes 3.11. Everything is made beautiful in its own time. Nothing is beyond his control. We tend to focus on the drab cocoon of life without realizing that on the inside, God is making a butterfly. We look at the wrapping rather than the gift inside. 
We think that if the circumstance does not produce immediate gratification and comfort and satisfaction, then it's of no value. If I can't see what's in it for me right now, then it must be bad. The fact that we do not see the beauty of what God is doing does not change the fact, dear friends, that God is at work. He makes all things beautiful according to His purposes. So Peter reminds us that we have every good reason to humble ourselves, submit ourselves, entrust ourselves to God. Then he tells us a second thing that I have in your outline. That we have a simple way to humble ourselves before God. A simple way to humble ourselves before God. Now when I say simple, I don't mean easy. (laughs) I just mean it's not complicated. It's not brain surgery. He's given us this simple way, and here it is in verse 7. The way you do this, the way you humble yourself before God, is you cast all your anxiety on Him. That phrase is not written as a command, cast all your anxiety on Him. It's actually literally written this way, casting all your anxiety on Him. And it's modifying the command to humble yourself. Humble yourselves, verse 6. How do I humble myself? By casting all my anxiety on Him. That's the way you do this. So God has given a straightforward, uncomplicated way for us to humble ourselves, namely by casting all of our anxiety upon Him. Now how is that an act of humility, to cast all of my anxiety on the Lord? Because it's an act of humble submission to the sovereignty and the goodness of God. The word that's translated anxiety here in verse 7, it's used in a number of places in your New Testament. One is in Matthew chapter 6, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he says, I tell you, do not, and here's that word, worry, same word, anxiety. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. The great apostle Paul used it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, I face daily the pressure of my concern. That word concern, same word for anxiety in 1 Peter 5, same word for worry in Matthew 6. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. The same Paul wrote famously to the church at Philippi. Do not be anxious about anything. Same word. Let me make a book recommendation to you. I believe we have some copies of this in our resource center. Uh, It is called Anxious for Nothing by John MacArthur. And I encourage you to read that. A very helpful book with regard to God's prescription for worry and anxiety. And God's simple way, not easy, but straightforward way, is you cast your anxiety, your worries, your concerns on Him. Because He cares for you. Because He is a good God. So I say in your outline, this is what then we are to do. We are to hand over our worries in dependent trust. Hand over our worries to God in dependent trust. Now, I want to do something unusual at a couple of points in our remaining time together, and we don't have a lot. But uh, the first unusual thing I want to do is have some guys distribute some sheets of paper 
just blank sheets of paper. These brothers are just going to pass these down the row, and I encourage you to just take one. And on it, I encourage you to write at least one thing that makes you anxious, that you're worried about. If you need extra paper, the guys will give you some. (laughs) But what's going on in your life that you have not cast on the Lord? that you are struggling to turn over to the Lord. Now, it's fairly tight confines. You may be sitting next to someone and you don't want them to know your particular worry and so you can try to scratch it. Look, just just write it down so that you know what it is and what God knows what it is. Put it in code. God will know your code. Okay? But but I want to encourage you, dear friends, to think and think about this soberly. What am I anxious about? What am I worried about? And those things, verse 7 is telling us, we must cast upon Him. Hand over your worries in dependent trust on Him. Now let me, more importantly, let Scripture up the stakes of this a bit. Because if, as the way the text is laid out, it's a humble act to cast all your anxiety on the Lord, and that's the way it's laid out. If you're going to humble yourself before the Lord, it means this, casting everything on Him. This is how you do that. If that's the case, then think about the reverse. It's pride, then, that keeps me from doing so. What keeps me from casting all my care upon Him? If it's humility that causes me to do it, it's pride that keeps me from doing it. One commentator said it this way, worry is a form of pride. Because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust in is themselves. When believers throw their worries on God, they express their trust in His mighty hand, acknowledging that He is Lord and sovereign over all of life. I have a, a, a list that I use in counseling sometimes. It's called a 50, five zero forms of pride. One of those 50 is self-sufficiency. And the author of that paper describes the self-sufficient person this way. I tend to be self-sufficient in the way I live my life. I don't live with a constant awareness that my every breath is dependent upon the will of God. I tend to think I have enough strength, ability, and wisdom to live and manage my life. My practice of the spiritual disciplines is inconsistent and superficial. I don't like to ask others for help. Now, friends, that's the way the self-sufficient person lives. And many of us are worrying about, not necessarily things that are happening now, we are worrying about the way things are now because of what happened in the past. And we're carrying that anxiety into the present with us. So let me give you an example of how that works. If I've been harmed in the past by people, 
I carry that in the present because I adopt the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me approach to life. Which means I've had other people mistreat me. Now I'm going to act in a defensive way because I don't trust other people anymore. That's never, that's never going to happen again. That's our mantra. And rather than trusting God, that if I behave in these new relationships, in the ways that He has prescribed in Scripture, that He is sovereign enough and that He is good enough to control and orchestrate the outcome, rather than doing that, I take matters into my own hands, asking myself, but what if I get fooled twice? And I ask you again, is God sovereign over that? And is God good in that? And so what do we have to do? We have to hand over our worry and dependent trust to this sovereign and good God. And here's the other thing we do in your outline. We hand over our pride in repentant faith. Because the failure to cast our care upon Him is a matter of pride. So now what I've got to do is I've got to I've got to hand over that pride, the sin of pride to him in repentant faith. Because you've doubted either that he cares for you or you've doubted that he has the power to see it through. And hear this, friends. In that we have doubted his care, in that we have doubted his power, we have doubted the reality of the cross. Think about that. Does the cross tell you that God cares for you? Then how can I doubt that? Does the cross teach you that God has all power over the circumstances of this world? He brought that about exactly as he determined before time began it would occur. He has power over all people in all circumstances. And to the extent that I doubt that he cares, and I doubt his power in my puny life, I have doubted the reality of the cross. Dear Christian friend, you need, we need, much more than a pill. We need a person. We need God the Son. We need Jesus. With our anxieties and our cares. We're going to finish in a really weird kind of way. I had you take those slips of paper and write on them your anxieties and your cares. I, as your pastor, I would love nothing more if the people in this church, this dear flock, would set a date, this date, December 1, 2013. And on that date, I began to cast all my anxiety on him. So here's the weird part. I've got two trash cans up here. And I'm going to put them on these two tables. And I'm going to encourage all who are willing to take that thing or things that you wrote on that sheet and bring them to Jesus. And say, Lord, I'm throwing them away from me. And I'm casting all my anxiety on you. Whether things that are going on in the present or things that have happened in the past. 
And so you think about whether or not you have the willingness to do that. We bought nice trash cans for this occasion. not going to shame anyone into doing anything. But I just want to say this to you. As we cast these things to Jesus and away from ourselves, it's been your pride that has kept you from doing so. Don't let your pride keep you from doing so for a moment longer. So I want to take a few moments to invite anyone who wants to come and say, Lord, I'm casting this, this thing to you. We're going to throw that stuff out. You don't have your name on it. The deacons aren't going to go rummaging through and see who's got what problems. Okay. How many of you would like to cast your cares upon the Lord? Please. bow before the Lord. Lord Jesus, we give these things to you. You know every circumstance represented on those scraps of paper. You know every life that is touched by them. You know every connection between what has happened, what is happening, what will happen. You are the God who made this world and controls everything and everyone in it. You are the good God who came and gave his life for us. Because of that, we cast all our anxiety on you. We entrust it to you because we trust you. 
Oh, Lord, help me. Help this dear flock to, from this day forward, awake every day and say to you, Lord, I trust you with today. Lord, I trust you with yesterday. Lord, I trust you with tomorrow. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.